Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. He was more than just a globetrotting journalist. He influenced people, a whole generation of journalists, in the way reporting should be done. It's easy to imagine that pre-internet journalism has nothing relevant to teach us, let alone how one person you probably never heard of influenced the way journalists still do their jobs, and learning his story could help you view your job in a different way. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Mary McNeil is a former editor and writer for the Congressional Quarterly and the primary author of Environment and Health, Reagan's First Year, and The Nuclear Age. She recently completed her first full-length biography, Century's Witness, The Extraordinary Life of Journalist Wallace Carroll. Mary, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay. So to start off, tell me a little about yourself. I mean, how did you get involved in journalism? What got you interested in it? Sure. did journalism in college. I was a writer and editor for the school paper. I went to Wake Forest University, and that was actually where I first ran into Wallace Carroll. But after I graduated from college, I worked at various newspapers locally in the D.C. area, the Prince George's Journal, if you remember that. And then I worked at Congressional Quarterly. So that I've always had a, a love for the field of journalism and journalists, basically. Even though as I progressed in my career, I changed professions. I worked at the World Bank for many years. But while there, I was also launching magazines and writing a lot of stories. So I tried to stay with it as much as I could. So you said you met Wallace Carroll. He was your instructor? Yeah, I took a course. He had retired. He had been the editor and publisher of the city paper in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he had retired and taken on the role. He was a lecturer at Wake Forest University, and he taught a course on the First Amendment. And uh, that's where I first ran into him. And at the time, we didn't know anything about his background, we being the students, because he never talked about himself. And the course was fascinating, of course, and he was someone that you just knew was special and that you wanted to do your best for him. You didn't want to appear stupid. But that was pretty much all we all we knew about him. So that's how I first came across him. And so if, for those who may not be familiar with Wallace Carroll, can you sort of give us a, I know you want people to buy your book so they can find out everything, but can you sort of give a, you know, a brief description of, of who he was and, and sort of his significance for 20th century journalism? Sure. Well, I ran into his name a long time later, you know, 35 years later, I was in London and I read a book called Citizens of London, which is about three people, three Americans who were working in London in the late 1930s to help bring the U.S. to support the British against Germany. And Wallace Carroll's name kept popping up all over this book. And I never knew, of course, that he had been in London or what his role had been. So I started to research him and it was like unpeeling an onion. The more I looked into him, the more interesting and fascinating his life became. He basically was a reporter for United Press beginning in 1929. And he spent 14 years in Europe as a correspondent, foreign correspondent for UP covering the hunger riots in London in the early thirties. Then he moved to Paris. 
Then he became the diplomatic reporter for covering the League of Nations, 1934 to 1938. And so he was firsthand seeing the rise of fascism, the deliberations about Germany and Italy and what they were doing at the time. And then he was appointed the bureau chief in London in 1939, right on the cusp of the war. And he managed 75 journalists and covered the Battle of Britain, the London Blitz. And then in 1942, or excuse me, the end of 1941, he voyaged up through the Arctic Circle to go into the Soviet Union right after the Nazis invaded and was among the first journalists to cover to the front lines and to cover that part of the war. And then to make it even more interesting, he had to get out of the Soviet Union. So he traveled east through Asia and landed in Pearl Harbor three days after the Japanese attack. So he was again, one of the first people on the scene to report on the devastation of the attack. So just right there, you have a great adventure story. Eyewitness accounts of all these events. He also had gone to Spain in 1938 and covered the Spanish Civil War. So the book has a lot of eyewitness accounts of these adventures, but he had a long life. And so therefore that was only the beginning. He came back and they asked him to work in a place called the Office of War Information, which was frankly the propaganda arm for the US government. And they charged him with overseeing all of the information flowing into Europe to support the allied cause. And so he was in effect, the Allied counterpart of Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister. So there's a whole section about that. Then he came back, he went to work for a first stint in North Carolina as the executive editor of the Winston-Salem Journal. Then in 1955, James Reston, who you may know was a very famous editor for the New York Times, recruited him to head up the news part of the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. So he did that from 1955 to 1963, and it's not over yet. <laughs> then he left the Times because he didn't like the way they were editing his articles. And he went to be the editor and publisher of the Winston-Salem Journal, where he had complete control of the paper. The owner of the paper was a guy named Gordon Gray. He was a heir to the Reynolds fortune, and he basically let Carol have total independence. And while there, it was right in the middle of the civil rights movement, the desegregation of schools, the demise of the tobacco industry, which of course in Winston-Salem was a big deal, and uh, the environmental movement. And in 1971, he led the paper to a Pulitzer Prize for environmental reporting. So, you know, these are all the facts, but the overriding thing was that within the journalism community, and we've even discovered this today, given the wonderful comments we've received on the book. He was absolutely seen as the best, most respected reporter of the time. People today, Donald Graham, who has written for the book, a, a nice review of the book, George Will, Norman Perlstein, the former content editor of Time magazine, all of these folks, in a way, knew of him and followed his model. So. He was more than just a globetrotting journalist. He influenced people, a whole generation of journalists, in the way reporting should be done. It's pretty amazing. I, I'm about actually halfway through the book in the World War II section. And you kind of said this, any decade from his life could be a career in somebody else's life in journalism. 
pretty incredible stuff. I particularly enjoyed the brief section of his misadventure, if, I, if you don't want me characterizing it, of going to cover the Spanish Civil War. It didn't turn out the way he particularly probably wanted it to, but what he really kind of connected with was, you know, as a journalist, things happen and you do the best that you can, but the experience, you know, which you write in your book, provided him with a lot of perspective that he was able to use, certainly in the, in the coverage of World War II. So, you know, for somebody, you know, for a young journalist today in 2022, what can we point to in his life and the way he approached his journalism that would be relevant, do you think? Sure. Well, I think he did live in a, in a different time. And back then, newspapers were the major way that people got their news. And the written media, even though it was gradually usurped by radio and television, was still the reliable place to go for news. And of course, now you have a whole different culture of, you know, tweeting and the internet and, and short stories and so on and so forth, that you have to grab people's attention quickly and not write in depth. And I think that young journalists today can learn quite a lot from Wallace Carroll. And one of the things that I write about and that I respected most about him was that it wasn't about him being a celebrity himself. It was about reporting the news. And I think this is something that is a good lesson for young journalists because there is this push to become a celebrity particularly on cable news and so on and so forth. And really it's about not becoming a celebrity, but about building a reputation as a reliable and trusted journalist. He had an absolute commitment to accuracy, to fairness, which didn't mean in his lexicon having to report both sides of a story if one side was a total lie. And he actually wrote a lot about this in the McCarthy age, and said that he felt that the media had actually helped McCarthy gain power because they wrote about his lies. He said, you don't have to feel compelled to do that as a journalist. Just because somebody says a lie, you don't have to repeat it to prove that you're objective. He called it the tyranny of objectivity, actually, that we need to watch out for. And of course, you know, we can see the relevancy of that today <laughs> in the way that a lot of untruths are not only reported on, but exaggerated and emphasized and covered broadly and widely when, you know, all that really does is give more play to the liars. I'm not going to mention names, but I think journalists know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I was thinking about that last night. I get a lot of my news. I follow a number of news feeds on, on YouTube. And it was like, here are six news outlets basically telling the same story that actually isn't you know, substantially different than what the story was yesterday or last week. And it's sort of, you know, well, with those resources, I wonder what other things they could be covering. Talking about how things are different now, you know, we do have the 24-hour news cycle, which is, you know, a tough thing in, in terms of coming up with new news. But, you know, doing investigative reporting is hard work. And I think that, you know, journalists are hard workers. It was the hardest thing I ever did when I was a working journalist, basically that job. But I think it requires that. I mean, I think if you really want to follow Wallace Carroll's model, you don't fall into the trap, if you can, of just reporting the top couple sentences of something, but understanding the context, understanding a little bit the impact, understanding the why of things a little bit better. And both he and Scotty Reston, James Reston, 
the famous editor for the New York Times felt very strongly about that. And in a way they changed the way news reporting was being done because they hired people that were specialists in a field and could go beyond just, you know, the clickbait, if you want to say, of what a story might be. And I don't mean to criticize today's journalists too much because I think that there are many, many, many great journalists doing great jobs. And the business model is such that it's very hard unless you work for one of the big papers that are well-funded like the Washington Post or the New York Times or the LA Times to be given the time to do the kind of reporting that needs to be done. A subplot to the, to the book is with the death of local newspapers and local journalism, it's really hard to have any kind of resources to do that at the local level. And another thing I really liked about Wallace Carroll is that at the height of his career, he left the national spotlight and he went to work for this regional newspaper. So to me, that was something worth noting that the independence he would have been, he was afforded in North Carolina was worth him, you know, being more of a celebrity and, and writing for the big, big newspapers and that kind of thing. I imagine he probably liked the opportunity to work for the New York Times and, and cover those that level of, of stories. But, you know, considering he was he you know was covering the Spanish Civil War, he was covering World War II, I think by the time he retired, he probably, you know, I wanted to do the thing I enjoy most about journalism and not have to worry about this other stuff that I don't, you know, having, having my stories re-edited. So this is your first full-length biography. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it took me five and a half years to write the book because I am not a fast writer, which is why I didn't actually stay in daily journalism. But, you know, the writing and the research were fascinating. Wallace Carroll, I discovered, had papers at the Library of Congress, which he contributed. And it was just fascinating to sort of delve into this guy's life. He had written summaries to his papers, which sort of made it, wonderful as a writer to sort of have that in front of me. And one thing also about him, he had a very famous son named John Carroll, who went on to become one of the most well-known editors in the country. He passed away in 2015, but he was the editor of the Los Angeles Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Baltimore Sun, and so on and so forth. But his family had kept all his papers personal papers and tapes he had made of when he gave presentations to the Winston-Salem community when he was older. And these tapes and presentations were all about his adventures in Europe and when he was a foreign correspondent. And they were wonderful. I mean, they were so entertaining. And so you are there and, you know, real storytelling. So that was wonderful to have. And then when I had pretty much finished the book, I got a box of letters from his family, which were all of Peggy Carroll's letters. And Peggy was, of course, Wallace Carroll's wife. And she had written almost daily to her mother during the London Blitz and from Geneva where they met and so on and so forth. You know, you could have published these letters on their own because they were so lively, so articulate, so I was able to put those into the book, which I think added a lot to it because it was a real love story between the two of them, perfectly matched intellectually. So the process was great in terms of the research. The negative, and I'll just say this for those journalists out there wanting to 
publish a book. You know, finding a publisher when you're a first time author and writing a biography about an essentially unknown person is a very difficult sell job. You know, that was challenging. I finally found one and it's worked out. And I'm glad you wrote it because I was not familiar with uh, a Wallace Carroll and I'm really enjoying the read, especially what you mentioned about the letters that Peggy wrote. It gives you a different sense of, you know, pre-war Britain. And I guess he was also in, in, was it Switzerland? Yeah, he was in Geneva for many years. Geneva, covering, yeah, covering the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. It wasn't all just, you know, I went to this thing and I covered this event. It was more about, you talk a lot about the sources he developed. And actually, that's one another journalistic thing that I, I found kind of fascinating is he developed these relationships. He had a relationship with Winston Churchill. His sources trusted him. You know, that was part of his, I think, his strength. He was also apparently a hard worker <laughs> and a dedicated worker and somebody who was always trying to improve what he was doing, but also getting the story right, you know, and finding the story that tells the bigger story. And, you know, he was described by other very well-known journalists of the time as being absolutely the soul of discretion. So his sources did trust him. And I think Peggy even writes in one excerpt that he was among the most trusted because his sources knew that not only was he very intelligent and, and knew the background, the diplomacy, and but he didn't talk about things. And if you met him personally, he was not loquacious, he was not gregarious, he was a quiet man, but he had a certain presence about him. And I think that's why he was able to develop such great sources. You know, and that's another lesson, I think, maybe for today's journalists, not that they don't already know that, but there's one quote in there where Max Frankel, who went on to have a very illustrious career at the New York Times, he was working with Wallace Carroll in the bureau of the New York Times in the early 1960s as a young reporter. And he said, watching Wallace Carroll handle the phones was a lesson in and of itself, because he would literally be able to call up, you know, Eisenhower. <laughs> he knew everybody who was in the administration, in the Eisenhower administration, and, you know, even in the Kennedy administration when, where he was at the beginning before he left. And it goes a lot to the feeling that people had of his personal integrity and his ability to sort of judge what should be written about and what shouldn't be written about, and the intellectual capacity to understand things beyond just what someone was telling him on the surface. It sort of makes you wonder what he would be like, you know, with those sa that same skill set, you know, in 2022. How would he thrive, I, I would imagine? Because there are so many different ways to communicate with sources and, and uh, follow up leads and tell stories. One of the anecdotes that you have in the book is uh, actually, I think it's the one that you start the book where, you know, it's London during the Blitz. He goes up on the, the tower on the roof and he sits there, is calling down to the um, newsroom because he had a phone put in from the tower because he knew that, you know, he was probably going to do this. That when he saw the um, the German uh, bombers coming towards the city, he was you know called down to the newsroom and was dictating a story that they could send out sat on the wire. Back then, one of the things which might be a little bit of a plus for journalists today is back then, your main objective was to beat out the competition and getting the story out. You know, they had a big rivalry with the Associated Press, and so it wasn't just that you had to get the story, but you had to get it out quickly and be the first one to report it. And I, I guess you have that still 
today, but maybe not as much because everything is so instantaneous now. But back then, you know, you had to send it out over the wire. It had to be transcribed down. It had to be printed. It was a different sort of undertaking. And certainly for today, I think that was one of those skills we kind of had to unlearn a little bit. Newsrooms responding immediately with the information that they had and, and turning out that that information wasn't correct, that maybe moving so quickly, you know, was maybe not the primary goal. Ascertaining the story and, and identifying the sources, that's kind of where you put your effort in at this point. So how do you feel about the book? Do you feel that you sort of uh, accomplished the story that you set out to write? I feel really good about the book and it was fun to spend t that much time with someone that you respect so much. And I'm a history, you know, nerd. So all of the research having to do with the history, I, I really, really enjoyed. And what has been most gratifying, I sort of mentioned it earlier, is that, you know, I sent it to a lot of very high profile people who don't know me from Adam, you know, <laughs> but almost all of them responded in a very generous way and a very complimentary way, in large part, I think, because of their respect for Wallace Carroll. But I also think at least I did a, you know, a sufficient job that these people that are writers themselves and, you know, know how to put together a book or a story were also very complimentary. And that was nerve wracking because I knew my audience was going to be people that, you know, know how to write and, know that you can't get a fact wrong. And there are a lot of facts in the book. So I feel good about it. If someone asked me if I were to do it again, what would I do? And I think, as you mentioned at the very beginning, you could take any part of this guy's life and make a book out of it because it was so rich. And maybe if I were to do it again, I would do that. I would you know, take maybe you know, one part that's about the war and elaborate on that and put that out as a book or, or something. But, you know, I feel pretty pleased with it. Actually, you do a Robert Caro thing, just like, you know, <laughs> Yeah, every, I actually sent it to Robert Caro <laughs> every six, he actually responded. every six years, you know. just drop another, you know, thousand page yeah, volume. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So have you, have you, you know, what are you doing next? Have you, have you thought about, you know, what you might want to write next? I haven't really. I'm sort of really tied up with getting the book out. And, you know, I'm sort of not sure what I would do next. I'm not trained as a fiction writer. I'm much more trained as a sort of nonfiction writer. So I'm not sure I may do another nonfiction or I may do something that's more historical fiction. I'm very intrigued by the World War II time period. And if I do something, I might focus it on that time period. But I, I really don't have any hardcore plans in terms of what to do next. Yeah, World War II. Certainly, there are a lot of stories to tell there, even though many stories have been told. Well, Mary, thanks for coming on the, on the podcast. I, I'm really enjoying the book. I recommend it to anyone. The Extraordinary Life of Journalist Wallace Carroll. It's a great read. I guess it's one of my summer reads. <laughs> the summer's, summer's about over. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you're enjoying the book. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. 
Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.